You're listening to Feral Attraction. Hosted by Metrico and Vero the Science Collie. On this week's show, we open with a discussion on our recent interview in Playboy and detail how that happened. Seriously, how did that happen? Our main topic is on shame. We begin a three-week series on shame and how it is a secret killer of motivation, relationships, and your own integrity. Um, We're going to close out this week's show with a question on sexual intimacy when faced with difficulty having sex. Hello again and welcome to Feral Attraction. I'm Metrico. And I'm Fear of the Science Collie. So, um, things happened this week, everybody. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a fun little surprise that we dropped in kind of like middle of the week. So, uh, our friend Deborah So, who writes for Playboy, um, and we've many other publications. Yes, like many, many publications. Um, she contributes at Playboy and has written articles there on asexuality, a lot of actual uh, articles that we've spoken about in the top of the show. And um, she asked if we would be interested in having an interview in Playboy. And, of course, we said yes. Um, so, who says no to that, right? Yeah, I mean, really, who says no? Like, it's, it's I mean, you know, it's funny because a lot of people have this odd sort of, you know, idea of what Playboy is because they just think, like, oh, it's a centerfold. Oh, it's a nudie magazine. And that's really not the case. Um so yeah, the old saw about reading Playboy for the articles became a joke for a reason, right? It's because Playboy actually has always had very good journalism in it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Playboy has, you know, when it comes to the articles and even like itself as like a publication of erotica, it has been fairly progressive throughout the years. I mean, you know, Playboy was really, it came to fruition in a time where you you still had segregation within the United States. And so it was very progressive by having both um, white uh, pinup models and also pinup models of color. Right. I think Playboy's always try to straddle that line between being progressive and transgressive. Right. And I think it's kind of a very nice place to be culturally uh, because you get very exciting things happen in that liminal section between those two things. Right. And you also have like the articles like going back to that where they have been, almost since day one, very socially progressive. You have stories that uh, are gay-friendly, basically from day one, talking about, well, what would happen if we flipped the script and you lived in an all-gay world and you were straight? Uh, You have famous authors, famous cartoonists that contribute to Playboy. Playboy has, you know, yes, there is definitely a focus on erotica and sex, because it is a gentleman's magazine or, you know, it's really a magazine for everybody, to be honest, because it does kind of focus on, like, human sexuality, which everybody can appreciate. But, you know, it was founded with that kind of gentleman's approach to to take a classic approach, a classic view of human sexuality, of male sexuality in particular. And since time, you know, since then, over time, it has evolved to focus on pretty much every kind of topic you can. It's, it's, it is, you know, it's basically like GQ magazine, but instead of like male models, like you have female models and sometimes they show a little bit of nipple. Like, that's really it. And 
you know, it's funny. And the reason that I wanted to kind of go over that from the get-go is we wanted to talk about some of the feedback we've gotten on this article, which if you have not read the article, um, we we have it linked um, within the show notes. It's also on our Twitter, where you can yeah. just go to Playboy and look up those damn furries. Um, yeah, so some of the interesting things about that, just right off the top. So the article is called, These Furries Will Change Your Sex Life, which... I'm not sure what editor decided to go with that, but thank you, whoever that was. <laughs> we yes. didn't ask for such a glorious headline as that, but I'll take it. So thank you for that. Uh, and that was one piece of kind of like, oh, wow, you guys have a really big ego. So, well, actually, we had nothing to do with the headline, so we'll take it. But we have we can't really claim any responsibility for that. Uh, same goes with the hero image, which is the image they went with for the top of the piece. That's not art of us. We didn't put on weird tiger and lion masks and dress up in cool jackets because... Oh, I wish we did. ...classy like that. Um, Yeah, I know, right? They look pretty sick, but uh, that's not us. So that wasn't actually an editorial decision. We actually submitted some furry art, and I think Playboy decided, as progressive as they are, perhaps having furry art in their magazine or on their website was a little bit of a bridge too far. So the editors decided to go with a Getty uh, stock image, which... I can't necessarily blame them for because it, it looks pretty cool. But it certainly you know. made me look a lot better looking. Let me tell you, like holy shit, I have abs. <laughs> but no, that's not that's not us. And you know, it's it's editorially we didn't have control over that. We we just had control over what we said. Exactly. The only thing that we had direct control over in the entire article was the things that are actually attributed as quotes to us. So please keep that in mind when choosing to criticize us. Criticize us for valid reasons and not for things we had no control over because then you're just kind of wasting your time. <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, I think my favorite response was, "Those aren't real furries." Like in the in the in the picture, probably not. Uh, I'm a real furry. I'm a real boy. I swear. Yeah, like you know, I have no strings to hold me up. Like I really am the Pinocchio of our pandas. Um, but so you know, addressing those, and to be honest, I really like the image that they went with. I feel like especially to approach a mundane audience. That's a really great kind of bridge to show like, Hey, you remember that like weird music video about what the Fox says? Like, Hey, it's kind of like that, except like they actually, you know, have Fox characters. Like, you know, it's, it's, they did a great job of pulling from the IARP um, definitions instead of going with something like vanity fair (laughs) or CSI. (laughs) And the tone, I think, Deborah was going for with the piece, and the tone that I think Metrico and I were shooting for when we gave the interview was kind of depicting the fandom as being all grown up and kind of approaching it from a mature, honest, not shameful sort of perspective. And I think by bringing up the fact that we kind of approached the fandom from a perspective of not having a lot of shame is going to be very relevant for this week's episode, actually. So it's, that's a bit yeah. of, a, of a segue into, into that, potentially. Um, <laughs> But yes, that is one particular uh, point that I think is, is important to keep in mind. Is yes, we don't beat around the bush about the fact that there are some sexual aspects to some of what goes on within the fandom. But we also don't make that a focus of the piece. And we kind of make it a just part of what is the context of, you know, the angle that Deborah was going for with the article. So I think that came across pretty well. I'm, I'm pretty proud of how it came out. Right. there. You know, we did get some... Most of what we've received in response has been incredibly positive. And thank you for all of your kind words and for sharing the article. Um, it definitely, you know, it looks good for us. It looks good for Playboy. Everybody kind of comes out a winner whenever that happens. Uh, some people did um, 
come for me on the origins of the fandom. To be honest, I could have gone into detail about how we started at offshoot at sci-fi conventions and how we were propagated by zines, and then we went on to like Usenet. But like honestly, that's bogging down the details. It's um, I didn't really feel the need to do that. Well, and to be fair, we actually did go into more detail on pretty much every single one of these answers, but that's another thing that kind of happens behind the scenes is we gave a much, much longer interview than was able to be included in the piece just due to uh, Playboy size restraints on the articles that are allowed to be submitted. So Deborah really had to cut a lot of great material that we gave her about kind of the deeper origins of the fandom and some of the, we got into a lot more detail in a lot of the questions. And unfortunately, you know, not all that detail is able to be present uh, but you know, it was really cool that we were able to get anything at all into Playboy. Obviously, so we're gonna we're gonna take what we can get. <laughs> um, so, you know, some feedback we've gotten has been a little bit less than positive. And um, one thing, and you can continue to feel free messaging me about this. Like, um, it's completely fine. Uh, I received a lot of, com- of several complaints that by granting an interview and having it published in Playboy, regardless of the truthfulness or the, the, the accuracy of the statements that I give, it still is somehow tainted. And now whenever people are suiting or going to conventions, they're afraid that people are going to look at them in this like lens of, Oh, Hey, well you're a sexual creature because I saw that you were written about in Playboy. And it turns out that human beings are sexual in gender, uh, sorry, in general, uh, with all due respect to our asexual friends, uh, like in general, humans are very sexual beings. So furries are no different than other humans. And that's kind of another point, which is great that the uh, uh, furry research project got mentioned as well in the piece, which I thought, you know, props to those guys in particular. Right. Uh, and they have, you know, they, they definitely get a lot of credit for this, but they've really shown that furries aren't all that different from other fandoms and they aren't all that different from the general population except for a few kind of key distinguishing characteristics so i think it's still important to remember that the fandom is just a microcosm of society at large and the bigger the fandom gets the more that's going to be true over time so we shouldn't be too quick to to say that you know the fandom should be this asexual you know completely not talking about any adult subjects you know kind of kind of thing because obviously there are adults in the fandom, and some of those adults are going to be sexual, and they're going to make, they're going to sexualize whatever activity they're up to, whether that's you know models strewn across cars for guys who are into cars, or you know fursuits if you're a furry. So there you go. Right. So you know, it's at the end of the day, you know, we we are sexual, and there's no reason that we should say otherwise. It's obviously, and we even make this point. Um, there, there's such a small percentage of people that even have a fursuit within the community. And then there's an even smaller subsect of those people that like to have sex while wearing those suits. So we, we do make that point. Um, it's, it's, I do want to say that I am a little bit disappointed that people th- assume that just because something is mentioned in a magazine that talks about sex, that we're talking about sex. Uh, because we wanted to talk about the fandom at large, because a lot of people do have the wrong image, and they do have the idea that it is all just sex based off of interviews and articles written in Vanity Fair, based off of episodes of CSI, based off of you know casual throwaway mentions on you know television shows, based off of threads on 4chan. So it's good to be able to kind of detail 
a more mature top level vision of what the fandom is. And mind you, this is just how we see it. And, you know, it's, it's some people were like, well, who elected you? spokespeople for everybody you guys are not representatives well we we are representatives as members of the fandom it's we're we're not saying that we are leaders or pillars within the community but we are like represent our point of view but it happens to be a point of view that is from within the fandom because i think i have the right to self-identify as a furry and i mean i have a fursuit i go to furry conventions i have art of my character i have a podcast that is furry in nature i don't know what more I could do to like prove my furriness. Um, I thought, I don't really think there is a proving process, but yeah. based on that, I think I do get to be a card carrying furry. And that means that I'm allowed to talk about furry. It doesn't mean that I right. can represent myself as being the one true voice of the fandom because I'm not, mm-hmm. but I am a voice in the fandom and I'm allowed to use my voice. And right. that's, I think what it comes down to. Right. So, I mean, the, the, the gatekeeper for, entrance into the fandom is really incredibly low. You don't even need like a fursona. So it's really just self-identification. It's the same right. as being polyamorous, right? If you self-identify as poly, no one can really tell you otherwise, right? Exactly. So there was one other large point of criticism. And the the last question that we were asked as part of the interview focused on recent media attention to the alt-right within the fandom and why we think that that exists. And yeah, some people are kind of confused as to why that even kind of came up. And I think the reason that that came up is because there's actually been some mentions of the uh, kind of alt furs and the kind of Nazi furs coming up in kind of general media, especially in like the Colorado area where there's a lot, there's kind of a big Denver and like Denver area contingent of furries who are perhaps participating in kind of alt right sort of activities. And so because of that, there's more some actual general media attention on the fandom, and particularly that aspect of the fandom. And so we just wanted to set the record straight that that's a small minority of individuals, and that there's nothing really unique to fur about furry that would draw that type of person. It's actually the fact that the same type of person who might be drawn to the fandom could also potentially be drawn to the alt-right, but for, for a completely different reason. It just ha- so happens that there's a kind of seductive pitch that the alt-right can make to the type of person who might otherwise be a furry. And that's all it really comes down to, right? Right. So for people, and, and this is actually rather, you know, funny to me that there's a contingency of people that, and let's be honest about the alt right, especially on the internet for a second. Um, it is a group of honestly, just very vocal trolls who kind of delight on riling people up, uh, especially, you know, the ones that came from 4chan or something awful. And that's fine. That's great. That's your life. But at the same time, you don't kind you kind of lose the ability to be outraged when people call you on shit. Because we're just kind of calling it as it is. And if there's such a focus on, you know, oh, well, we can say outrageous statements then you shouldn't feel as upset or as maligned when people talk about kind of how you guys, you know, the alt-right acts. It's when you see the alt-right, especially on websites like Reddit's, if you go to the main uh, Donald Trump subreddits where they call each other centipedes, there's, you know, calling Donald Trump the god emperor, it's it's all you know memes 
but it's all active trolling of people who aren't, you know, part of your little group. You know, we, we, we call it as we see it, and that is how we see it. There was a great discussion that we saw on Twitter from individuals who were able to kind of tie in the culture of 4chan, as 4chan actively describes themselves, you know, as a lot of the members are part of the incel community, a lot of the members have levels of social awkwardness, many members have, you know, are on the spectrum, and we are able to kind of say, well, this is kind of how they self-identify. Now, a lot of this might be them joking, of course, but this is what they present as, hey, this is who we are. Now, we're not shaming people for being part of an incel community. We're not shaming people for being part, uh, you know, on the spectrum or anything of that nature. But what we are saying is that according to their own self-identifying metrics, this is the general profile of who somebody is if they are part of the online alt-right movement. Right. And I think the point that I was making then, just going kind of getting back to my background in science and statistics and like epidemiology, if we're trying to figure out like what's causal here, the fact is the same demographic characteristics that make someone more likely to be a furry, perhaps something like being on the spectrum, being somewhat socially awkward, being an outcast, perhaps not being uh, all that romantically successful, being having more geeky interests, having more online uh, socialization than in-person socialization. All of these traits might make someone more likely to gain exposure to the furry fandom and therefore to gain entrance to the furry fandom. But those same characteristics also make someone more likely to gain exposure to and to gain entrance to the alt-right movement, which is also an online community. So there's just going to be an enrichment for participation in online communities with people who meet those certain demographic criteria. And it doesn't mean that there's a connection between being a Nazi and being a furry. That's, that doesn't right. make any sense, right? <laughs> and I mean, you know, that that's coming from your background. Coming from my background as somebody who, who worked in politics and has a degree in, in, in politics, uh, political science, um, I went from the approach of like, here is the sociology behind this group. And here's, you know, how they find their political views. Here's how they express their political views, because that is, you know, one of my expertise, you know, that, that is an area of my expertise. So, you know, for people, if you are upset by what we said, that is completely your right. You are more than happy to be upset. But the beautiful thing is that um, we don't have to care because that's just kind of the viewpoint that you guys express as well, that you can say whatever you want. You can be propagators of outrage and everybody has to be okay with it because your First Amendment. Well, this is what the First Amendment is in response. If you don't like what we have to say, have your own interview. So that's really, you know, what, what I have to say. And I know that that is mildly flippant perhaps, but at the end of the day, there really is no other response to a group of individuals who kind of self-identify as trolls. So, you know, it's, it's. Yeah. Uh, I think that's pretty much <laughs> all there's to say on that matter. I think yeah. we can go into the second part of our intro, which is uh, a mistake we made last week, which was, frankly, that we completely neglected to mention a great cartoon that came out on the exact topic that we were going over last week. This cartoon came out just before we recorded, and we are like, oh, great, we're going to have the opportunity to mention this amazing cartoon on Pup Play that just came out in Ojoy Sex Toy, and then the three of us all completely neglected to mention it. So please do go back and check out last week's episode uh, that we recorded with Pup Powder, our special guest, on 
the joys of pup and handler play. But if you haven't, didn't get a chance to check that out and would like another way of getting kind of a brief intro in a more of a cartoon a visual fashion, please check out the Oh Joy Sex Toy cartoon on Puppy Play by Alex Reeder, which we will link to in the show notes as well. But you should be able to find it pretty recently on the Oh Joy Sex Toy website. And it goes, over pup, it goes over Pup Play, kind of what the, the idea is behind it. And because it's more visual, it might be a bit easier to kind of grok and understand certain aspects of what we were talking about last week. So if you want kind of a visual to go along with kind of a lot of what Powder was talking about, it's really going to help you figure out you know, what kind of gear is available, what kind of gear you might be interested in for yourself, and also the types of play and activities and meetups and such that happen within the pup community. So definitely check out that cartoon, uh, which we will link to in the show notes. Absolutely. And also, you know, make sure that you, if you enjoyed the article that we had in Playboy, you know, consider reading other articles that Deborah has written both in Playboy and in other publications and also consider sending her a thank you for hosting us and having the interview with us that you know if you especially if you really enjoyed it because that goes a long way in showing you know appreciation that the community has to you know more mainstream publications giving us a positive lens and kind of letting us express who we are and how we are as a community without like this weird shame tainted lens that we had, especially from like the early two thousands. Yeah. And to the same point, you know, tell Ojoy sex toy. You like seeing a cartoon about pup play as well. Anytime you see coverage of an activity, you enjoy that is positive and affirming. It's actually not a bad idea to let the editors know that you'd love to see more of that type of content because you'd be surprised at how rarely people take the time to do that. And it, editors speaking as one myself, who've had control over publication, when a reader tells them, Hey, I really would love to see more of that. That editor usually assumes that for every one person who is saying that, there's another hundred people thinking it. So generally speaking, writing letters like that can be very powerful and can really influence the editorial direction that a publication might take. So if you enjoy seeing content like cartoons about pup play from Ojoy Sex Toy or content like articles about furries from Playboy, then yes, let the editors know that you actually would like to see more of that content because it can go a long way. Absolutely. So, you know... We just wanted to, again, you know, express our thanks to Deborah for, you know, having an interview with us and, you know, granting us that time and that platform. And a big thank you to everybody who, you know, thanked us or told us how much they appreciated the article. And a thank you to the people who even expressed feedback, whether it was positive or negative. It's, again, the feedback that everybody expresses at the end of the day goes towards the betterment of the show, the betterment of the advice column, and, you know, the betterment of how we're able to express ourselves as we scream into microphones, looking into the void as we're hurtling, you know, ever so rapidly into that expanse. <laughs> so I'm pretty much just looking into Metrico's eyes right now, but you know, it's a pretty sexy void. If I'm, I must, must say, well, it's, it's, I got that like anime glosses going on. Thanks to these monitors. You can just see the reflection of yourself. So really you narcissist. Uh, so, you know, a big thank you uh, to everybody. And, you know, it's, it's, Hopefully we continue to do things that, uh, you know, you can appreciate. And to everybody who is joining us for the first time, a big hello. Thank you. We don't typically talk about ourselves at the top of the show, but we figured it was a little bit appropriate because we had enough questions about why this happened and how this happened that we figured we might as well address it. So um, we're going to move on to our main topic for this week. And so I guess a little bit of backstory behind this. Um I was recommended a book uh, several weeks ago called The Velvet Rage, 
and it was written by Alan Downs, who is who has a PhD and he is a licensed dialectical behavioral therapist, something that we've spoken about on the show before. Uh, very recently, I might add. And The Velvet Rage is a book that is written by a gay man for other gay men. And it talks about the origins of rage and shame. Now, a lot of times, people will talk about gay men that have internalized homophobia. And that sounds like such a great combination of buzzwords that make really no sense. You know, how can a gay man be homophobic towards himself? Alan Downs really goes into great detail as to explaining how that is the case, how gay men are sort of brought up in this culture of shame and how we, rather than addressing it, try to deflect from it, try to distract ourselves from it. And by doing so, we continue to kind of injure ourselves more than any like gay basher really could. We wanted to talk about this, but in a more generalized concept, because as we were reading, you know, it's, it's, I read this book and I was like, Hey Vero, please read this book immediately. And I made him buy it. And apparently speaking, our Patreon, uh, Patreon sponsors bought it because that actually speaking of uses of our Patreon funds, that's the use mm -hmm. right there is buying resources that we use to then put content on the show. So thank you guys. <laughs> 9.95. Um, so we wanted to address this in a more generalized perspective because we feel that what Alan Downs is expressing can be applied to really a lot of members within the fandom. So we want to talk about shame. We're going to talk about shame for really the next three weeks. And this is going to be, again, some rather personal episodes. We're going to talk about ourselves. We're going to talk about our lives. And we also might be talking about you. We've had a lot of these kinds of episodes in the past. Things about integrity, emotional bandwidth, these core concepts to your identity as an individual, and things that you must address in order to really maintain a healthy, sustainable relationship. These core fundamentals of self are, are so vital. And when you are consumed with shame, when you, even if you don't realize it, and that is often the case, and we're going to talk about that in this episode, relationships become brittle and frail, and they are so difficult to keep together. We wanted to talk about shame. We wanted to talk about, in three steps, what is shame and how, how does one come to be consumed with shame? We wanted to talk about what that feels like, how to get out of a life of shame. And we realized that this would take several hours to kind of go over. So again, it's a three-parter. So, you know, stick around. <laughs> We're going to be releasing this, you know, for the next three weeks. So for me, this is a topic, to be quite honest, that like really up until I read this book, I really had never thought of or really considered discussing because to me... It wasn't 
something that seemed as important. But the more that I read and the more that I sort of became aware of what shame actually was, I began to realize the importance, especially within the fandom itself. It's important to note, you know, within the fandom, and we've said this before, the fandom is uniquely enriched both with people that are trying non-traditional or non-monogamous relationships, but we are also enriched in people that identify as homosexual, gay, lesbian, trans. We are enriched with people that identify as other kin or therian. We are enriched with people that identify as asexual. We are identif- we, we, we are enriched with people that are not maybe necessarily part of what you would consider to be the mainstream culture or the mainstream way of living. And it's important to note that, you know, we as a, a fandom, because we have that, that beautiful diversity, we often find ourselves tortured by what makes us so incredibly unique. You have gay people who were raised in environments that maybe were not the best. You have individuals that feel, you know, kind of shamed about maybe being trans. You have people who don't feel comfortable about talking about, you know, Therianism or, or their own personal spirituality within the fandom, regardless of what that, that school of thought might be. So this is kind of an important series, and hopefully you find it to be as, you know, hopefully we're able to come off as eloquently as Alan Downs has. I and- highly doubt that, but we'll give a shot. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, first thing we really want to cover, though, is I think this, the origins of what is shame, and so we, we're all on the same page. We always, one of my favorite kind of catchphrases from the show is, what does that mean for you, right? Because I'm always talking about the the need for communication to be clear and to really make sure that we're all using the same vocabulary and meaning the same thing when we use the same words. So this is actually a really difficult problem surrounding the idea of shame, because it's one of those words that popular culture has kind of taken and twisted from what it originally meant. And it now kind of is used interchangeably with other words like guilt or self-consciousness. And those words actually have kind of different meanings. That, and I think preserving the difference between those words is actually quite important to do because otherwise it's going to be very hard to talk about what we're talking about. So shame has a, a very old German origin, and it comes from a word that originally meant to cover up. And if you think about, for example, the story in the Bible of Adam and Eve and how when they finally gained knowledge, they realized that they were sexual and they felt this shame and this need to cover themselves. That's kind of the sense of covering up that the origin of the word is talking about. So shame is really the painful feeling arising from a belief that you are somehow evil, bad, defective, inadequate, flawed, damaged. The idea that there's something wrong with you. And it's just a, painful, a really painful negative emotion that you feel basically from the sense that there's something deeply wrong with you. And not like in the sense of I feel sick, but in the sense of I'm a flawed person. I'm not a good person. So that's very different from guilt, which is actually, you know, a similar emotion in terms of how it might feel. But guilt you feel when you've experienced having done something wrong. So guilt is about what you have done. It really represents pain at having hurt someone. And this is actually dependent on your ability to empathize and to 
feel sorrow at the idea that you've caused pain to another individual. So put another way, shame is about what you are, whereas guilt is about what you've done. Shame is more of a form of weaponized self-pity. That's another way you might be able to think about it. And as a result, it really doesn't depend on empathy. It's really contained within the self. So there's no idea of I would hurt someone, therefore I feel bad with shame. Shame is the sense that I just feel bad because I'm a bad example of a human being. That's really what shame is. Self-consciousness is another word that kind of enters the mix here. And self-consciousness is a pervasive preoccupation with how you're perceived. But this doesn't necessarily carry the connotation of being fundamentally broken on the inside that shame does. So you can feel self-conscious and acutely aware of yourself and how you're behaving and how others might be perceiving your behavior. And that can happen without you having the sense of being fundamentally broken. So you might feel self-conscious without feeling broken inside. And because of that, they aren't the same thing. So self-consciousness is also not the same thing as shame. Do you have any other content that you wanted to toss in on there, kind of distinguishing these uh, phrases from each other? Yeah. So, I mean, you can be self-conscious about a lot of things. You know, people talk about being self-conscious about their weights or maybe they have acne you know, something about their appearance, something about the way that they, t- you know, sound. Maybe you have a lisp, you know, maybe, you know, maybe there are I lot- do, Metrico. Shut up. I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> reading you, Vero, but maybe I am a little bit, you know, <laughs> it's not hurtful if it's true. Uh, just kidding. Um, so the thing is, is that, you know, uh, being self-conscious about something doesn't always stop you from living your life in a fulfilling fashion. You can example, be, I have a list and I still a podcaster. That's weird, but it, there you go. Exactly. You know, but like you can be self-conscious and you can take steps in order to correct that. The thing is, is that if you're self-conscious and you're correcting it, let's say that you're like me and you're overweight, a self-conscious correction would be going to the gym, eating less calories, drinking more water. If you are shameful about it, the the you may not go to the gym. You might just wear larger clothing and you might, you know, you're not covering up something. You're not hiding it. You're not dealing with it. If you're ashamed, if you are self-conscious, you tend to take steps to kind of sort it out. Right. And for, sometimes self-consciousness is actually part of the road to getting over shame. And so I'll give an example with my lisp. So I actually used to feel very ashamed of the fact that I didn't like the sound of my voice. And I thought I had a lousy voice that didn't, you know, wasn't very clear that, you know, obviously made me sound kind of nerdy, kind of geeky. And so I was kind of ashamed of that. And for a while, I didn't like hearing myself talk. So I would avoid hearing recordings of my own voice. And I didn't, I never liked listening to myself. Then I decided that I wanted to be a journalist and I decided that I wanted to be a podcaster. And so obviously as a journalist, I was constantly recording interviews and I had to listen to myself talk frequently. So if I wanted to continue doing what I enjoyed doing in terms of you know, a career or as a you know, pastime, which is being a journalist, I needed to get over that and figure out how to listen to my own voice. So I was still acutely self-conscious. I knew how I sounded and I was very aware of that, but I kind of dispensed with the shame and decided, you know what, I just need to get over this and I need to just be okay with my voice because I'm going to need it. So I dispensed with the shame, but I was still acutely self-conscious for quite a while because I still knew that I wasn't really a fan of the way my voice sounded, but I didn't let that stop me. So that's kind of a difference between self-consciousness and shame. Is this the sense that you makes you something makes you fundamentally broken versus the sense that you can kind of deal with it as part of you and you're just going to move forward. That's kind of the difference, right? Right. It's like, uh, it's, it's a temporary, you know, I can feel discomfort about something 
But like, just because I'm uncomfortable doesn't mean it's broken. You know, the fact that I'm overweight kind of, you know, bends the rod of my integrity, but it doesn't completely break it. So when you feel shame about something, it is, again, the idea that something is innately and intrinsically broken about yourself, and chances are you cannot fix it. You know, when when we talk about queer people, when we talk about people within the LGBT community especially, that, that kind of sense, you, you kind of have to go through a midlife crisis when you're a teenager. And it's very strange. You know, when you first start, you know, feeling, you know, attractions or if, if you're gay or lesbian or bisexual to the same sex, or maybe you're younger and you're like, maybe, you know, the gender that I was born as is not the gender that I actually am. If you find yourself, you know, on the trans, if you're trans or whatever it is about yourself. For, for a lot of us, it hit us when we were younger, maybe just hitting puberty. Like, I can remember I was 11 or 12 when I really kind of identified that there is something wrong about me. And when you read a lot of these, these stories, these testimonials, perhaps, about people that you know, come out as gay or lesbian, they always identify... It is being something different or something wrong. And that's really unfortunate because that's kind of the culture that we are raised in, where if you are not heterosexual, something's broken. And there's really no other way for a lot of kids to kind of identify it because when you are younger, especially as a prepubescent into like a... um, going through puberty, people pick up on differences rather quickly. And it's those differences, especially as kids who we just roast each other, when they find that something is different about you, you, you just get made so much fun of. So you begin to feel shame. So when, when you are finally realizing what's happening and you're seeing you know, the kids around you talking about something being, oh, well, that's so gay. That's so gay, meaning stupid or wrong or broken. And then you're like, but I'm gay. So that means that I'm the same thing. I'm going to talk about South Park for a second, because I don't give a fuck what two straight men have to say about the lexicon that we use. They're like, oh, well, we've changed the meaning of like, wow, uh, there was an entire episode about how people being annoying, people being stupid. Well, you should call them faggots. And that's what the new meaning of the word is. I'm sorry, they might be brilliant when it comes to comedy, they might be brilliant when it comes to Broadway, but they do not get to define what that is. Sure, is that a meaning of the word? Yes. But that is also the word that somebody used when they stabbed me. That is what somebody called me when, you know, acts of violence were perpetuated against me. So I don't give a fuck what two heterosexual men have to say. If you want to use that word, you know, wow, you know, that person's acting like a fag, like to mean that they're acting annoying or stupid, that's fine. But again, you're using a word that is primarily used to identify, you know, homosexual men as meaning stupid. It really bothers me. It genuinely does because it does add to the, the shame. Oh, well, it's we societal, don't... right? It's societal, this idea that society has of 
gay being bad, gay being shameful. It's just an association. It's a, it's a shitty association. And it actually, people think, oh, you know, language doesn't matter. Language, and, you know, to an extent, maybe in an isolated incident, yes, that one little use of that word doesn't matter. But that's where the idea of microaggression comes from, right? And this is right. where people want to dismiss social justice warriors for being completely off base. But this, it's based on a legitimate concept, which is the idea that when you have a pervasive use of a word like that, it actually delegitimizes the the the, the people that that word applies to when people have a connotation of faggot meaning weak effeminate stupid you know poor judgment any of those types of things that's a, then coming to be a stereotype that then gets applied to actual homosexual people right so right. that's where it becomes problematic and then the the worst part is those people then growing up in a culture that associates those words then grow up to associate those words with themselves and that's where this internalized shame comes from right absolutely so, I mean, the whole thing is, is that especially as adolescents, especially as we become, you know, when, when we are teenagers, that's when we really are supposed to spend time kind of figuring out who we are in general. And for people that are not LGBT, for people that, you know, may not identify as other kind of theory and for whatever it is that you identify as, especially as an adolescent, that is an added burden onto you. And that's something that you generally have to conceal. Your parents may not approve. Your parents might kick you out. Hi, mom and dad. Um, your, your parent, you know, your, your, your peers, your classmates, your friends might abandon you or make fun of you or ridicule you. So you conceal it. You bury that shit deep inside of you and your entire life, your entire game at that point is not about living your life and discovering who you are and making mistakes it is centered around keeping that secret. And that is how the shame begins. That is the origin of shame. It is when you feel that there is something so different about you that if people knew, they would disassociate with you. If people could figure it out, they would no longer want to be your friend. They would no longer want to have any ties to you. So you, you keep it, you close it up, you hide in the closet. And the longer that you're in the closet about something, you know, the more different you begin to feel because you are working so hard to keep in the closet that you kind of lose sight of who you are as a person. Your self-identity is not, you know, hi, my name is Metrico and, you know, I'm a fully realized person you become kind of shrill and you become kind of so over the top about other areas. You overcompensate that you're not actually who you are. You're who you think everybody else wants you to be. Very true. Very true. And when you conceal that, the longer you conceal this, whatever it is, it becomes easier to lie because you have to lie because you have to protect yourself. You have to hide your shame. And the only way that you can hide truth about your about yourself is to cover it up with a lie. You also kind of lose sense of like being a genuine person. You're no longer a whole person because you're not able to pursue your interests. Maybe you're not able to talk about things that you like with other people. You're not able to be a fully rounded individual because you have part of yourself that is locked away. It's also very difficult, if not impossible, to find and attain genuine validation from others. Now, validation is something that we're probably going to talk about next week. 
because it is a core concept to how you kind of go about handling your shame to how shame itself can kind of hurt you. But when we talk about validation, when you overcompensate to hide an aspect of yourself, let's say that you're gay. And I'll talk about myself for a second here because it's better that way. So I like hearing you talk about yourself, Metrico, you're sexy. Oh my God. Um, so when I was growing up, it's again, I kind of realized, you know, that I liked guys. There was, um, when I was on the playground, actually, I had a friend who was going down the slide and, uh, he was going down backwards and his pants came undone and kind of rolled up around his knees. And you just saw like him in his underwear. And at that point I was just like, yeah, okay. I'm into that. So while I didn't really like attribute like a sexual kind of connotation to it, I did attribute like a, I really like seeing that. And I don't know what that means. And as I became more sexually developed, I realized, oh shit, this is actually a thing for me. And so that's what kind of sort of set the trigger for everything. I was sent to a Christian school for my middle school years, which let me tell you, if you want to get some real good self-hatred and shame, go to a religious institution for education because they will just tell you how sinful you are. Oh, I went to Catholic high school. I, I know the <laughs> feeling. <laughs> and so because of all of this, I decided that it would make more sense. You know, I wanted people to recognize me, but I didn't want them to recognize me for being, you know, a fairy. So I became the smartest kid in school. Everybody loved having me around because I was intelligent. I was a nerd and I was okay with that. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't that great at sports, but I didn't have to be because I was intelligent and people can make fun of me for not being bad, for not being good at sports. And that's fine because that's something that I can't really get any better at. I can't play basketball for shit, but at least they're not making fun of me for being gay. It becomes a suit of armor. These, these things that you perpetuate, this, you know, self-mockery, the cynicism about yourself becomes just a suit of armor. And nobody can penetrate that because if they did, they would discover that inside it's just a tangle of secrets and shame. Yeah. So, and, you know, speaking of my own experience, kind of in my early adolescence, when I was still grappling with a lot of shame over my homosexuality, I grew up in a very somewhat, I mean, my grandparents and my aunt were very conservative Catholic. My mother was more liberal Catholic, but still there was not a whole lot of acceptability to homosexuality in my family. And so I definitely felt a need to keep that part of myself hidden. The fact that I had non-heterosexual desires, once I figured out what exactly those were about. And in high school, I was really, you know, terrified of being outed or being perceived as being not straight. And so I thought one of the ways I could make that not really an issue, and I don't I wasn't entirely conscious, but I kind of let my physical appearance go. And I kind of let myself, you know, become more overweight. I didn't eat very healthily. I allowed myself my acne to get out of control. So I had really bad skin and terrible complexion. I made myself, you know, I have kind of bad haircuts. I didn't really put much effort into dressing myself very well. And so I kind of just made myself unappealing and physically unappealing in terms of attraction. And so I thought I could kind of hide in ugliness. In a, in a way, because people wonder why I wasn't dating anyone if I just made myself painfully unattractive. So I kind of hid myself in that way. 
And then people just didn't really take much notice of me. So I had time to do things that I enjoyed, like reading and playing video games and computer games and kind of retreating into escapism, which obviously, you know, I think a lot of furries and a lot of homosexuals can probably relate to that, having that kind of backstory where they kind of just turn more introverted and turn into a world that is private and part, you know, part of the self rather than having to grapple with other people because other people might find out your secret, whereas when you're alone, you're safe, right? So I think that's why a lot of gay, gay kids turn, into be, turn out to be introverted. It's because they're kind of culture, culturally need not to trust other people because they have this dark secret they're trying to hide, right? And, you know, it even goes beyond, beyond all of that. The longer that you live in shame, the more that that shame becomes tangled with self-hatred. You know, I wish I didn't have to hide this part of myself. I hate myself because I'm gay. I hate myself because I'm trans. I hate myself because I'm Therian. I hate myself because of these reasons. I wish I could be normal. These are feelings of like self-hatred. It's self-agonizing hatred. This is where that internalized homophobia, that internalized transphobia perhaps comes into play. It's not that you hate gay people. It's that you hate yourself because you're gay, because you're trans, because of whatever reason it is that you are walling yourself off. It's not a buzzword. I felt this very strongly for a series of years, and it took me years to correct. And that's something I will say, too, just recommending The Velvet Rage, is I think any gay person reading that book, I recommended it now actually to a few other people as well. Petal, who many people might know from the uh, Feral Attraction chat rooms, one of our moderators, is reading it right now. And uh, I had the same reaction from Petal. Like, wow, holy crap, this is so, this rings so true for me, how, to my experience. And pretty much every gay person I've recommended the book to has had that experience reading it. So you know, this idea of kind of how to grapple with shame, it's not just, you know, made up. This is actually very much true to the gay experience. And anyone who's listening who might be heterosexual or, or not at least a gay male might not have quite the same experience because, and this is talked about in the book, the, the very particular way that gay males experience shame in our culture is kind of unique. And it shame has is behaves similarly in lots of other contexts as well. But there's a very unique shame to being non-heterosexual or non-heteronormative, right? Absolutely. I would recommend, you know, if you consider yourself to be, you know, an LGBT ally or, you know, some, an individual that wants to work for social justice, you know, this is a great book to read in order to kind of understand how shame is. It's a great primer. And then from there, you can move on to other areas. If you want to look at racial injustice, if you want to look at sexual injustice, uh, how women feel shame as opposed to how men, you know, kind of seem to be oblivious to it at times. <laughs> but the thing is, is that, you know, I would recommend this highly to read this book. When you, when you have shame, it becomes like this, this great burden. And it's really funny because there's, there's a Christian like short story called the Pilgrim's Progress. And it's all about this guy's, walk, I believe, up a mountain, which is this massive allegory to like the progress of life until you get to heaven. And it define it talks about how he's walking with this backpack and it's this heavy burden and he can, you know, he's slowed down to a crawl at times. And finally he repents and Jesus Christ and whatever form he appears 
takes off the spag and he's much freer and lighter to continue his journey up the mountain. And, and, and it's funny because like in a, in a way everybody deals with that uh, when they live a life of shame, you know, and, and most religions sin is just shame. It's I've done this, you know, I've, I've lost it. I've lied. I've done all of these things. I'm a broken person. Whereas in a lot of religions, you turn all of that over to your higher power. In the reality that we live in, especially as gay men, you know, LGBT youth, adults, whatever that might be to you, we don't really have a higher power we can turn that over to. We we can't like leave our burdens at the feet of like Dan Savage or RuPaul or really anybody. <laughs> We have to become self-actualized person, you know, a self-actualized person, because as you, you know, continue to be burdened by shame, you continue to wall yourself off more and more and more. You lock that closet door so tight that nobody can get in. But the truth is, is that you can't get out. You are a prisoner of your own prison. And as RuPaul says herself, you are your own worst saboteur. When things go wrong in your life, they could be outside of your control, but you are going to blame yourself for everything. You are so self-agonizing. If only I didn't have to hide this, I would be happy. If only I didn't have to hide this, I could do all of these things. I could do what I want. I could achieve anything. Instead, I have to focus so hard on not letting people find out that I am missing out on opportunities. That's why you see a lot of people when they come out of the closet, they seem to go through this phase of like being slightly immature. It's because they leave their adolescence because they didn't really have one the first time, right? It's not it's not only that. It's because you haven't really had those experiences, the the the, the true experience of growing up. There is still a sense of immaturity. It isn't just wanting those experiences. It's you have needing them. You haven't learned from those experiences. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, when, when you're, when you're, you know, a living a life of shame, it's very difficult to achieve any kind of genuine happiness. And for a lot of people, when we talk about like, we can say like Maslow's, you know, hierarchy of needs, you're not really able to achieve Many of those, you might have shelter and you might be able to eat, but you can't really like have genuine connection to other people. You know, when, when you see yourself as intrinsically and unfixably flawed by dyad, there's little to no incentive for you to build connections with other people and you become isolated. And that isolation drives you further into this feeling of shame and feeling flawed. Well, I don't have any friends. Why don't I have any friends? Because I can't have friends. Because if I have friends, they will find out. To be fair, that fear is kind of founded in reality. I was outed by a friend who I allowed myself to be slightly vulnerable, and they fucked me over. That's fair. It's completely fair to feel. But having that fear makes it to where you kind of come off as icy. You come off as, you know, impersonable. You, 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 you are kind of like the, this, this, you know, there are perks to being a wallflower, (laughs) but at the end of the day, you aren't really able to have anything in your court. You feel the world is entirely against you and you begin to see patterns that don't actually exist. It leads to just general anxiety 
And it can contribute to, you know, you having issues with achieving intimacy and having healthy relationships, even after you're out of the closet, because you don't know how to process or really build those relationships up. Because while people in their teenage years were dating and hooking up and fucking up and making these mistakes and learning from these mistakes, you never had that opportunity. So you don't have that foundation. And that can be a separate kind of shame itself. It's uh, Alan Downs, you know, talks about this, this kind of wound, this emotional wound that you create. Uh, and he says, you know, an emotional wound that's caused by toxic shame is a very serious and persistent disability that has the potential to literally destroy your life. And that's a really powerful quote, and I think that's actually one of the stronger quotes from the earlier sections of the book, The Velvet uh, Rage. And the, what he's really talking about there, this, and the reason that, you know, kind of the shame can be so disabling is that there's this thing called compounded shame that uh, we talk about. And compounded shame is this propensity of shame to kind of trigger a whole kind of cascade of negative emotions that can basically make, end up being a kind of vicious cycle of kind of kind of tri- falling down the stairs emotionally, and it's it, it can be horribly damaging for oneself and one's own self esteem and one's own sense of oneself. But it can also be horribly damaging to all of the intimate relationships that that person might hold dear. It can be very damaging in the workplace with work relationships. It can be very damaging with to friendships. It can be basically damaging to any type of relationship that person who's coping with shame might have. And so compounded shame occurs whenever the you know, shame triggers a, a secondary emotion like anger or fear or regret. And I'll just give you an example uh, of somehow where this might happen. Let's say that someone comes very close to outing you or, or makes some kind of suggestion that you might be gay or calls you a sissy or something like that. And because they called you that, you then completely overreact and start screaming at this person in a crowded restaurant and make a huge scene. So now, yes, you maybe addressed the shame of that person coming close to outing you by, by clawing it to question your masculinity. But now because you threw this huge hissy fit and tantrum as, an, as a grown person in a restaurant and the entire restaurant is looking at you and wondering what's wrong with you, well, you're going to be looking at yourself and wondering what's wrong with you too. So now you feel this huge, this gigantic wave of secondary shame from the fact that you've now, and guilt from the fact that you've now done something you perceive as wrong, which is having an outburst. And when you feel, huh, I'm really out of control, what's wrong with me? That feeling of what's wrong with me is then another wave of shame, right? So now you're having guilt and shame on top of shame. And then you might feel even more anger. And then the the anger leads you to another outburst. It enrages you. And that shame continues and the shame deepens. And the rage causes you to be more wounding, to be more violent, to be more impulsive. As you can see, this quickly becomes a vicious cycle that leads to you lashing out at people around you and driving people away. And then as you drive people away, guess what? You become more isolated. You wonder why you don't have friends. You feel more broken. You feel damaged. And that only induces more shame and more isolation. You start walling yourself off. And again, you just kind of fall into this pit of despair that shame can trap you in. And that's why we say that shame can be a very trapping emotion. Because once you let shame start motivating your actions it really can just tumble out of control and you becoming a monster before your own eyes. And you wonder how, why am I doing these things? It's a horrible feeling too, because the shame is what's causing you to feel the shame. And then you feel, you actually end up becoming the monster you were so afraid of being the whole time. 
and it's terrifying and it's horrible for everyone involved and it's really painful to watch. And I've seen it happen to friends of mine, people I'm very close to, and it's incredibly painful to watch somebody basically throw themselves down the stairs by having a shame response like that. And it's really, and unfortunately, it can be very difficult to stop yourself once you start down that path as well. Catching yourself when you're falling down that stairwell of, of compound shame can be very difficult to do, speaking from personal experience even. You know, it really is a closed loop. And a lot of this has to do with the idea of contradictions. You know, when you're not, I've said, you know, the phrase, live your truth. When you're not living the truth that is you, when you're not living your truth as a fully realized person, you you create a contradiction of the truth itself. And contradictions of truth really can't exist. On the inside, you are, you know, a gay man, a gay woman, trans, whatever it might be. And you have to perpetuate this lie of you being anything but. And that contradiction is really what the shame is. You feel shamed that you have to lie to people. You feel shamed that you have to lie to yourself. And that contradiction causes the divide between yourself and other people to widen. And as you begin and continue to become further and further separated from people. That shame has no outlet. That rage, that anger has no outlet. And you become so internalized that there is really no saving you. And that furthers your shame. You're a closed loop. You're a closed circuit. And all it takes is one person to kind of say the wrong thing, to do the wrong thing, and you just explode. And it is, it's terrible. It really is, because for a lot of people, they don't see any alternative. You know, growing up as I did in a religious and conservative family, I mean, I couldn't be out. I couldn't live my truth. I had to hide it. You know, when you grow up in a religious household with a lack of alternative viewpoints, when you live it as there's one truth and it is this religious truth, you must be this, you must be that, you must be this, you must be that. Any deviation from this and you are a flawed person, you are beyond salvation, and we want nothing to do with you. You don't want to lose that. The strongest connection that really you should have is with your parents. And when there is something that threatens that, you feel bad. I mean, if you get separated from your parents in like the grocery store or the toy store or whatever, you feel holy shit panic time, like sonic drowning music, like but but you know, you feel super anxious. But what if the thing that could separate you from your parents is yourself? You have to hide that. You have to conceal it. You know, we talk about, you know, more selfish drives about, well, what if my parents would pull financial support? And that's fine and dandy when you were in college, when you might have more of a grasp on who you are. But the base emotion is that you don't want that, you know, you don't want to be cut away from your family. You don't want to be cut out from your parents' love because that's really the first love that you received 
and the first love that you really had. And it might be the deepest love. The relationship that you have with your parents, in a lot of cases, is going to be the longest relationship you have with anybody in your life. And nobody wants to lose that. That's why you conceal it. It might be because you're afraid of ridicule from your peers, from your teachers. But ultimately, a lot of people hide it because of their family. You don't want that to be taken away from you. And, and fortunately, that is a founded fear. For many kids that come out as gay, that come out as trans, you lose that connection. The culture that we live in is fucked up, everybody. Because it encourages shame. Because it has the wrong idea of shame. We have to change the definition back to its root. Why is all of this important, though? You know, shame comes with a heavy price. It's not just this emotional burden. It is, as uh, it is as Ellen Down said, it is an emotional wound that becomes a lifelong, serious, persistent disability. You lose integrity. We we talk about if you want to love somebody else, you have to first love yourself. You know, this is really hard to do if you're feeling intense shame, right? Right. If you can't love yourself because there are parts of you that you believe make you unlovable, you're not going to be able to form genuine connections with people. You're not going to be able to form a genuine connection with yourself. You're going to push people away. And that's going to further your misery, further your torment, for, you know, you're just going to be a miser, essentially. It's unfortunate. And I was going to talk about this later, actually, in terms of how people actually can mask shame. It's one of the ways that that it happens, but it also is relevant to talk about here. And that's that when you have this loss of integrity associated with shame making us unlovable, there's actually another thing that can happen, which is that your integrity becomes so eroded that you actually end up splitting your integrity and forming essentially two completely separate personalities. It's one way that your brain can resolve the cognitive dissonance of your integrity being eroded is you actually end up building up two different selves. You can have one self that you perhaps is your gay self, the self you, that you, the persona that you are when you are, for example, at the gay bar, or maybe if you're a furry, your splitting is you're a complete, you know, gay fur fag when you're in fursuit, but when you're out of fursuit, you're this, you know, mild mannered straight guy, right? So, there's a lot of this that can happen where you become a completely different per- person in one particular context. Perhaps that you're, that, that you're part of the pup community and that when you're a pup, you're a completely different person and, you're, and your sexuality even might change, right? You have a completely different sexuality when you're in a particular headspace. And that, that's actually an example of splitting or essentially taking your personality and multiplying it so that instead of having to worry about compromising your integrity, you just, your brain just builds up two separate sets of integrity, one in one context and one in a completely different context. Now, this is all well and fine until somebody from your you know, family sees a picture of you in a pup catalog or until you, know, you bump into your brother when you're walking down the street arm in arm with your boyfriend and you just come out of the gay bar, right? So the problem with splitting is that it, it only protects the self until those selves collide with each other because your brain, when it's doing that splitting process, feels like it's keeping integrity because the context has shifted to being compartmentalized in a way to only that context. So if I'm being a good pup, when I'm being a pup and I'm having tons of gay sex as a pup, 
I might not even feel any sense of guilt or uh, any remorse over the fact that I'm cheating on my wife if I'm married, right? Because when I'm in pup space, I feel like that's a completely different me. That Like the person who's married to my wife isn't doing those things. The person who's a pup is doing those things. And that might sound really crazy to hear about from the outside. But when you're in that scenario, it doesn't sound crazy. You don't even feel like you're being dishonest because you're literally becoming two different people. And it, it's really psychologically traumatizing to have to become one unified person again after something like that's happened because you've now had to have crossed over two completely separate versions of your personality with each other. And that can be really traumatic and frightening and really honestly can lead to horrible circumstances like people being suicidal because they feel like their, their sense of self is completely shifted underneath their feet when these selves can collide with each other. So that's definitely something to watch out for and to be careful of. And we need, it's something you need to guard against but by kind of letting shame become so pathological. Isn't that kind of what you're, you'd get at as well, Panda? Yeah, I mean, on some levels, you know, some form of compartmentalization can be healthy. You know, having different mindsets or, or headspaces can be incredibly healthy, but that only comes when you are a fully realized individual. For, I mean, for me, for example, the way that I act at home, the way that I act on this podcast is entirely different from the way that I act when I'm at my nine to five, because you have to present and offer a different set of skills. You know, I try not to take work home with me. So when I'm at work, I act one way and it's more professional perhaps than what, you know, people might be expecting from somebody as foul-mouthed and raunchy as I am. But that compartmentalization means that when I'm at work, I'm able to leave work at work and I don't take my personal problems, my home problems with me to work. It becomes an issue when you don't actually recognize that kind of behavior. You know, there there is a part of shame where you try to ignore it. You know, there you become almost desensitized to it. If let's say, for example, you put on like this, this fake face, this, this false bravado of not being afraid of something, let's say that you have a fear of flying and you're like, oh, I'm totally not afraid of flying. Oh, I'm totally down with that. I have no fear of it. You might talk the talk, but you can't walk the walk. If I were to hand you a plane ticket and say, okay, well, let's go to JFK. We leave in an hour. You have to face these things head on. And the issue with splitting, the issue with really compartmentalizing yourself when you're hiding aspects of yourself due to shame is that you do that so you don't have to face your shame. You do it to conceal parts of yourself. You don't do it to highlight parts of yourself. And that's the real difference. You're falsely compensating for areas that you feel lacking in. You're covering up the negative with things that you find positive. And that's the issue. Right. And I think, again, getting back to what I talked about before, it's totally fine to have a persona and to have a you know, different persona when you're in fursuit versus out of fursuit or something like that. For example, I'm much more playful. I'm certainly different. I play up different aspects of myself when I'm in fursuit than when I'm not in fursuit. But the difference between that and splitting is that when I'm in fursuit, I don't become a completely different person with a completely different agenda than I do when I am out of first, I feel like that's still a right. continuation of my integrity rather than me switching between two completely separate roles, right? Absolutely. My you value know. system, for example, doesn't change when I'm in fursuit. Mm -hmm. My things I would, would or would not do, 
in terms of, you know, actual limits doesn't really change when I'm in fursuit. But perhaps my actions and the way I present myself might change. And that's the difference. You know, it's um, there's there's a completely you know, there's a complete difference. You know, I when I am in a more professional standpoint, I might act in a in a different fashion. I'm acting as if I am a professional because, you know, while I have professional qualities at the end of the day, like, I mean, I am who I am. I'm not really this stuffy business suit kind of person. But there is a difference between acting that way to fill a role and living that way to hide yourself. The issue with compartmentalizing, the issue with adopting a false, you know, headspace or persona comes with the idea that you are living that persona. You're not living yourself. You are living a role. You are a professional actor. You are always on stage. And that's never healthy. You know, everybody has parts of themselves that they may not necessarily like. Everybody has things that they might be ashamed of. And that's fine. It doesn't make you intrinsically broken beyond being fixed. It doesn't make you a bad person. Let me tell you. But you have to face that. You have to go head on to that. And the issue with shame is that you want to do anything but. Shame, you want to conceal. You don't want to address. And that's where a lot of these issues come from. So you become addicted to ways that you can distract yourself from it. You know, you, you, you are basically a moth to the flame of false validation. It might be, you don't want to address the fact that you are trans, but you're a, you're really good at, you know, going to the bar and drinking everybody else under the table. So you want to find that validation. You might be really smart when it comes to classwork. So you'll take on the mantle of head nerd. You might be really good at art, so you hide yourself behind your art, and you get that validation for qualities that you might have that don't actually address who you are as a person. You know, being an artist is great. Being, you know, good at athletic events is great. But that's not who you are when you fall asleep. Genuine validation is feeling is is knowing that people appreciate you for who you are when there's no pretense masking who you are. And when you are concealing shame, all you have is false validation. You have validation for aspects, but not yourself. And you take what you can get. So you become addicted to it. You are Icarus and you fly too close to that sun. And eventually it means nothing. You have to get closer and closer. You need more and more. It is a genuine addiction. With Gaiman especially, you trade your humane innocence for dry cynicism. And this is something that I mentioned earlier. Uh, My suit of armor became, you know, being very cynical about myself, being self-degrading about myself, because if I can make fun of myself Nobody else could. If I was the first person to point out, oh, look at me, I'm fat. Oh, look at me, I'm too gay. Oh, look at me, I'm not gay enough. Oh, look at me. Look at my faults. Expose my faults. Then nobody else could hurt me. But really, I wasn't being kind or humane towards myself. 
I was hurting myself. I didn't have a good connection with myself. And because I didn't have that connection with myself, that healthy self-love that I do now, and I still make fun of myself, but it comes from a place of love now, as opposed to like hatred, I wasn't able to have any stable relationships with anybody. No family, no friends, no boyfriends. And part of that was, you know, I devalued honesty. I devalued trust because I was lying to everybody. I couldn't trust anybody. So I couldn't be vulnerable to anybody. And so there was always this wall up and nobody could breach it because that I wouldn't let anybody. And when I did, you know, bad things happened. So that furthered my belief that I should just wall everybody out and never let anybody in. And it took years to overcome that. You know, some people, you, you mask shame in a different way. You know, we've, we've spoken about this, you know, the idea of splitting. It's an unfortunate fact that, especially within the LGBT community, substance abuse is rampant. And I'm not saying that it's bad to enjoy going out to the bar every once in a while. What I am saying is that it is a bad thing when you feel that you can't be yourself unless you are drunk, so you have a pretense to act the way that you really feel, that you have to do, you know, you you are constantly high on something because it's the only way to mask the internal conflict that you have because you're in such inner turmoil. The only piece that you can get is from, you know, hitting a, you know, hitting the pipe or, you know, smoking two marijuanas or whatever it might be, you know, it's, it's, if you're high all the time, it's cause you like being high. That's, that's fine. Yeah. That's, that's actually a different motivation. Right. Right. And I think that's actually, that's the difference between substance abuse and substance use and substance abuse really comes down to when it becomes a problem for you, when it's actually interfering with your daily life or your daily activities or your relationships. Right. And so that's, I think, an important distinction. Right. But it also comes about with through your intention and your motivation. Oftentimes, people who abuse substances actually stop caring about the negative consequences that the substances might have, have for them because they actually feel like they deserve to have bad things happen to them. And that's actually a consequence of poor self-esteem and a high amount of shame is you actually feel like you deserve bad consequences. And so, therefore, you become okay with the fact that alcohol is destroying your liver. You become okay with the fact that you might drive drunk and, you, hey, maybe you will get hit by a you'll, – you'll, you'll die in a car crash because, hey, dying would be so bad. And that gets to our next point, which is self-harm is very pervasive as a way Absolutely. of masking shame as well, right? So uh, things like cutting, certain types of substance abuse, um, obviously suicide, these are all behaviors that often, unfortunately, can be the last resort for some individuals who have this sense of shame. They have no other way of getting rid of it other than taking their own life. And that's obviously one of the most saddest and most disturbing outcomes of uh, shame being an issue for uh, homosexual and non heterosexual individuals, obviously, the fact that many of them commit suicide. And this is also a major issue in the trans community, obviously. There's many, many trans individuals, and also trans individuals of color in particular, uh-huh. who are very suicide, who have lots of suicide. And it makes those communities really feel like they're almost, you know, devastated by this as a real kind of epidemic. And it's, it's really quite shocking and sad. I mean, there are studies out there that show that, you know, and most of the research has been done on gay or bisexual men that shows that, you know, 
between the ages of 15 to 26, 54% of gay and bisexual men have considered suicide in a serious fashion or have attempted suicide. 54%. That number amongst heterosexual men, 13%. Gay men and really all LGBT, all of our LGBTQIA alphabet city from that point on, all of our community, you know, we are all vulnerable to this. And it's tragic. It is the most tragic thing, I think, that affects our community. And it is a poison that we oftentimes inflict upon ourselves. But we have to, or we feel that we have to, because the culture that we grow up in, the society that we grow up in, does not value what we bring to the table. Especially amongst communities of color, minority communities, where you might be first generation. You might come from a culture that overvalues masculinity, machismo. And if you feel that you are not as masculine, then you're not valued within your culture. It could be if you're trans, you know, your family is just not, they are not boarding the USSU. Like they do not like that one bit. You know, I was sent to conversion therapy camp because my family was not having my, my gay nonsense. And that led to, to me wanting to kill myself. And while I was in gay conversion camp, that was a running theme amongst almost everybody there. The amount of self-harm and in checking up with people after I left, the amount of people that killed themselves, even after they successfully completed the program and were 100% straight, the majority of people either relapse because that shit's bullshit or they killed themselves. And there's no cure for this. There's, there's no magic wand we can wave. The issue is, is that this is something that we have to fix ourselves. It's not an easy fix. It's a societal fix. This is why, and it's funny because a lot of people hate the idea of like pride parades or having gay characters in movies or video games or music or whatever cultural, you know, pop culture shit. There is. People hate it. Well, we don't need more representation. We don't need gay people for the sake of there being gay people. You know, why? What? What? That doesn't make any sense. It makes a fuck ton of sense because we need more representation. I know that there are people that don't want things to become mainstream. They're like, well, the more representation that we have, the more mainstream that we become and the less culture that we have. We don't have to lose ourselves. We don't have to lose our culture. We don't have to become homogenized. But we can be heard and we can be seen and we can be recognized as being valid, as being okay, as being intrinsically good. And it kills me when I see people that think, oh, well, this is bullshit. We don't need more women in video games. We don't need gay men. Oh my God, LeFou was gay in the new Beauty and the Beast. This is bullshit. 
We're not letting our kids see that. Or why is pride so sexual? First off, we're going to talk about pride for a second. Um, learn your history. That's all I'm going to say about that, really. Learn why we have pride when we have pride. Learn what pride is, why we started it. Research a little bit of Stonewall. That's going to help you out. Trust me. Pride is great because it shows young kids like my gay ass when I was 10 and 11 that it is okay to be gay, that you can be gay and be public and be completely fine. And you can have fun because a parade is fun. Fuck, it's a lot of fun. It Life is hard enough when you add on these additional modifiers of being gay or being trans or, you know, being a minority and being gay or trans or being a minority or being a woman. You need this representation. Because there's so much intrinsic bias within culture as it is. And I know that this is social justice And you know what? Fuck it. We're going to be social justice for a second. We need to have additional exposure and representation. Because right now, we as a society, we normalize hatred and bigotry. We genuinely do. And anybody who says otherwise... You can't call yourself an ally of the gay community. Looking at you, Donald fucking Trump. Looking straight at you, you fucking orange orangutan. Like, fuck off with your bullshit. Because here's the thing. In the culture that we have now, once you are outed, whether you out yourself, somebody else outs you. When when you are no longer having to actively conceal your shame, you don't have any direction. Because you've been living so long, this this double life. You don't know where to go. And that news cycle continues. You know, a news cycle of you don't know who you are. And for some people, when you live, you know, 10, 15 years in a life of shame, and you come out at 22, 23, you're like, oh, well, fuck. I need to show people that I am as shameless as possible, that I have no shame. And that's where these these behaviors of substance abuse, of risky sexual practices, of self-destructive behavior come into play. You may not be concealing your shame, but you are still burdened by shame. You are just in a secondary stage of shame. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. And, you know, getting back to the, the risky sexual behaviors and touching that a bit more, because that's kind of my wheelhouse, uh, that's important to keep in mind, too, because that gets back to the low self-esteem issue of feeling, well, I don't need to protect my body. I don't need to protect myself. I deserve to get an STI. I deserve to be dirty. I deserve to be unclean. I deserve. So you kind of tell yourself this narrative of, well, I feel I'm so broken already. Who cares if I'm broken in a different way? Like, and that's why some people, even they become kind of fatalistic. Of course, I'm going to die of AIDS. Might as well get AIDS. All, all gay people die of AIDS. I deserve to die of AIDS. Like, it's my punishment for being gay. Might as well get, make it happen sooner rather than later. And so some people will actually even it, it, intentionally try to acquire a- HIV AIDS because they want to die of AIDS because they feel like that's the fate they deserve as a gay individual. And so that can be very um, negative, obviously, and very self-destructive. But, you know, when you understand that this is all being motivated by shame, it makes sense why these constellation of behaviors all happen together, right? Absolutely. So this was the origin of shame. This is how shame kind of is born within us and how we propagate shame, especially during our formative years. 
So we're going to talk about shame next week more as an adult. When your shame is exposed, how you still carry that shame, but you find different ways of detracting from it, of not allowing yourself to face it head on. So that's going to be next week's topic. We're going to move on to our question, though. Um, our questionnaire wrote an email with the subject of like sexual dysfunction. Boiling down their email, because it is slightly long, um, I have a sexual dysfunction that has manifested itself for the last decade, and I have not found any resolution. In short, I can't climax with any partner. Uh, their email reads, uh, Since my first sexual experience at 17, I have not been able to climax without doing it myself. I can't get off being pawed by someone else. I can't get off with oral. I can't get off with full intercourse. I'm 27 now, and my sexual experience is extremely limited. Even during the three occasions I've actually had intercourse and simply given up for lack of progress. Not that I tried, but I was concerned that I was wearing my partner out. Uh, I had trouble with getting myself off by my own hand. I would call it an experience, but at some point one would think that even lack of experience would be overcome by a primal sexual response. I don't think I have a physical problem since getting hard is easy for me, and I'm in general good health. I'm actually quite sensitive, and oftentimes it is actually so overstimulating when someone paws me, even with lube, that I have to ask them to stop. Yet despite this, as soon as I'm being blown or I'm balls deep, it's as if I'm wearing a triple-thick condom. The sensitivity is almost non-existent. I have heard of stage fright, but I can't say that I feel exceptionally nervous during intimacy. The limited research that I have seems to suggest theories suggesting chronic masturbation or death grip. Uh, porn habits are all to blame. I can honestly say that my frequency is less than once daily. I don't choke it like it owes me money. And though I used to watch porn daily in college, I might view it once a week these days. I have noticed that my general libido has dropped off quite a bit in the past year, but I can't say why. Please let me know if you have experienced this before or know of someone who has. To date, I have never had good sex or even mediocre sex. It's something I crave, but when it happens, it becomes a chore and ends with a stifled explanation. I can't run with the whiskey dicks excuse forever. I dread the humiliation of having to lay all of this out to my doctor just so I can get a referral to a urologist or a psychologist or even both. Even then, based on what I have read, the only treatment is practice sex, which basically requires a willing partner and lots of repeated attempts. I don't have any willing partners in my life, and moving into a relationship uh, in the romantic realm has been nearly impossible for me. Different problem, different time, different everything. So what can I do? What would you do? I feel rotten about this, and I can't reconcile how, I f how something that is so simple for the vast majority of people can go so wrong for me. Okay, so there's there's a lot going on here. Um, first thing that I would recommend is uh, just talk to your doctor about this. Like that that's first and foremost. Overcome the shame, right? Yeah, overcome no the shame. shame associated with this. It's fine to not be able to come. That's not a problem that you need to be guilty about. And doctors hear far worse all the time. So yeah, so talk to your doctor about this. It could be like a hormonal imbalance. It could be maybe you have low T. It could be you know there could be a number of factors. I can't really diagnose you since a I'm not a you know, practicing physician, never been to medical school, but I mean, this is something that you would need to speak to a specialist about for sure. Um, 
it's difficult to kind of offer advice on this because there could be like an actual medical issue that's causing this. And it may not be something that you can kind of correct yourself. I mean, it doesn't sound like you're, you know, putting on a show, you're not getting nervous, even though sometimes that might be the case. It could be, especially if it's the first time with someone, you might have difficulty in getting off. And if you don't have like a uh, partner, a repeat partner, sexual play partner, then that might be the issue. But I don't think that that might be the case here. Um yeah, I, mean, I think that's definitely true. One thing too to keep in mind is there might be a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy going on as well, right? right. So if you're con- if you've convinced yourself that you can't get off during partnered sex, guess what? Your dick's not going to get very hard. You're not going to feel very aroused during partnered sex. You're going to be so anxious and worried about the fact that you can't come that you're not going to be able to finish, right? And so that can be very hard to break out of that pattern of self-fulfilling prophecy as well. So that can be another issue you might want to keep think about. Is maybe you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself to finish. And so one thing you could do is tell partner at the very beginning of a play session, you know what, I'm probably not going to come. And I I, I really enjoy intimacy with you. And finishing is probably not going to be the objective today. I hope that's okay with you. And we're just going to roll around and have fun. So take all that pressure off of yourself. Once you make finishing not the objective, you might be surprised by how easily you're able to finish. Because suddenly there's no goal in mind. And suddenly you're just allowing, allowing yourself to enjoy and allowing yourself to explore another person. And you're not seeing sex as this goal-oriented event where it's, sex is unsuccessful unless you finish. Because, I mean, it sounds like you're really miserable because you can't come. And it's like, well, if you're still enjoying the fact that you're pleasuring your partner or you're still enjoying the fact that you're in bed and intimate with the partner, maybe the fact that you're not finishing every time isn't the biggest deal. Maybe you can have intercourse, not come, and then you go to the bathroom and paw yourself off and imagine how much you love your partner and that's how you come. And maybe that's just how your body works. That's actually something that I think Dan Savage talks about sometimes is, you know, maybe that's just how you work and you don't have to shame yourself or feel bad about that. If what you do is you come during when you paw and you don't come other times, maybe that's just how you work. And that's not necessarily bad. That just may, might just be you. You might have a pawing fetish, as weird as that might sound. And that's a thing that can happen. I mean, some people can only come by doing one particular type of thing. Right. If your particular type of thing is pawing off, then maybe that's just what you need to come. And we tell women all the time, you know, whatever you need to come is what you need to come. And guys too, like, you know, you just need to, whatever you need to come, if you need a vibrator, if you need a hand down there, if you need, you know, a a pony and a canoe in the room to come, (laughs) you know, you do whatever you got to do, right? That's what, that's what we, you know, Dan Savage talks about is like, you got to do what you got to do. So don't punish yourself or shame yourself for coming in one particular way. Just be happy that you're coming at all, you know, and uh, and don't worry so much about the about whether it's you know you doing it or whether it's your partner doing it or whether it's after you're done with the partnered sex or whatever. As long as you're still enjoying the partnered sex and you're still enjoying intimacy with your partner, I mean, a bottom partner might intellectually like the idea of you coming in them, but if the person really loves you and knows that you have this issue, hopefully they'd be able to understand and would still be able to enjoy sex with you without feeling like a failure just because you didn't finish because obviously if it's a problem you have every time they haven't failed at anything your body's just doing its usual thing there's no one's no one's failing right it's just it doesn't happen so mm-hmm. that's fine stop treating stop comparing yourself to others and talking about what you should, what should be happening and instead focus on accepting what is happening because you'll actually find paradoxically that by accepting the situation and not wor- worrying so much about changing it it becomes far easier to change right exactly you know you do mention that you are sensitive to like touch when somebody is uh jerking you off but when it comes to like actual penetration you don't really or you you just don't feel anything a lot of people 
they don't really get off on penetration and that's completely fine. Maybe that's just how you are. You're just not, you know, intrinsically wired to enjoy penetration. And that's something that, you know, I, you can kind of go through with a doctor. Maybe a sex therapist might be able to help you in this as well. I wouldn't feel beat your, I wouldn't beat yourself up about it though. Your libido, your sex drive is completely unique and you don't have to feel bad that it's different than what other people have. I also think you might actually be completely misdiagnosing the problem. And this is something you might not have thought of, but there's a correlation here that maybe is related. And I want you to think about this a little bit carefully. And there's a very big difference between partnered sex and masturbation that you might not be considering. And I would ask you to the degree to which you fantasize during masturbation and the degree to which you fantasize during partnered sex. Your issue might actually be that what you're fantasizing about when you're pawing off and coming is, you know, really hot centaur porn with like really great tentacles and all this awesome stuff happening. that's like hitting all of your kinks and oh man, that there's bondage going on and oh, she's bleeding and oh, she's got like, she's pregnant from like six different places. And oh man, this is so hot. So you're like off in like mega kink land. You're like deep into it, man. You're like really hardcore. Like this is stuff like the Japanese porn is even like mild compared to the stuff you're into, right? So you're like completely immersed in some kink maybe while you're, you're jerking off. But then when you're with, with your partner, you might feel really inhibited about fantasizing because you feel like, oh, I'm with my partner. The only thing I should be thinking about right now is my partner or I'm somehow being disloyal or I'm not like in the moment and that's bad. And so you have all these preconceived notions about how you need to be in the moment with your partner during sex. And so during sex, your dick basically feels like it's in molasses because you're not fantasizing. You're not engaging in any of the erotic imagination that you normally do during jerking off. And so the issue is not that you're the type of stimulation you're giving your dick. The issue is the type of stimulation you're giving your brain. Your brain is actually your biggest sex organ. So if you're not fantasizing during partnered sex, that might be what you need to be doing in order to come. Maybe it's that your partner being beneath you isn't actually enough stimulation for you. And you need to be, need to be fantasizing about your partner being in a particular scene with you or your partner to be wearing something or maybe your partner, you may, so maybe what you're leaving out is some aspect of your other your rock imagination or kink that would actually be enough to push you over the edge. It might just be that vanilla sex is not enough for you, but perhaps kinky sex or more imaginative role, role play, either within your own mind or with your partner, could actually put you over the edge to being more aroused and engaged in the situation besides just physical pleasure. I know for myself, and also speaking for Koji, Koji actually has this problem. He far prefers masturbation to partnered sex. The main way that he's able to come during partnered sex is through me telling him a really kinky story or through us role-playing. He doesn't often even get hard during sex otherwise if we don't have a really kinky role-play or erotic scenario going on. So maybe what you need is a scenario. Maybe that's the issue. This is actually quite common, especially in the fandom. Because I think within the fandom, people are actually much more kinky or much more in touch with their kinks or willing to explore their kinks. And therefore, they might sometimes they kind of skip past vanilla sex before they even have vanilla sex. For people in the rest of the world, it's quite common to have sex and to experience vanilla sex before discovering kink. Furries, because they're denizens of the internet and because the internet is full of kinky stuff, and furry porn is very kinky often, Furries get exposed to tons of kink before they even have partnered sex often. And so they will misdiagnose, I can't come during partnered sex. And what they're actually having a problem with is I can't come without fantasizing about kinky shit. Like that. So that might be the issue, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's, again, I would just fully recommend there are a lot of possibilities. 
I would recommend talking to your doctor and just say, listen, I have this going on for me. Would it be possible to refer me to, again, you know, I would, I don't think it's a urology thing because your dick doesn't. You can come. Because like he can come, right? Right. So well, if he can come, it's not physio- It's probably not physiological if he is able to finish, right? Well, That's I mean, kind of what it comes down to. Yeah. So I would recommend maybe getting a referral to a sex therapist and, you know, seeing what they can offer because your dick doesn't like transform from a super sensitive flush tube to this like unfeeling rod of iron the second that you would ins- insert it into somebody. So just talk to your doctor. It'll be okay. Trust me. Your doctor has seen and heard far, far, far worse. I would imagine. So thank you for your question and good luck. So again, next week, we're going to talk about shame some more. It's week two or shame two electric boogaloo. We're going to talk about shame once it's no longer concealed. And when you're still kind of trying to overcompensate for it, especially in your late teens to early adult life. If you uh, like our show, if you have a question for us, if you have feedback for us, if you have advice for the person that asked a question this week, hit us up on our contact page. Go to our website at feralattraction.com. We have an entire contact section where you can submit anonymous feedback, anonymous questions, find ways to get into touch with us through Pretty much any format, you can call us. All sorts of good, fun ways to make yourself heard here to us. If you like our show, you know, and you're listening on iTunes or Google Play or whatever music, podcast, application you have, consider giving us a rating or a review. It helps us with visibility, and it helps other people find our content. And, uh, you know, you might also consider giving us, you know... A little bit of uh, love on Patreon. Um, we do have different levels on our Patreon for our patrons, um, one of which does allow for us to give shoutouts at the end of every show. Uh, Snares has been a longtime patron and friend of the show, and he has his own Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash snares. And also, if you're looking for commissions, uh, you can visit his for Affinity. His username is Furious, like the emotion that you feel when you're consumed by shame. Zarpolis is an author (laughs) who writes high-tech sci-fi stories with anthropomorphic elements. Um, You might be interested in his uh, recently published short novel by Thurston Howell Press titled The Pride of Parahumans. You can check that out on Amazon. If you're looking for a new friend on Twitter, consider following Myron the Fluffy. Their Twitter handle is Myron the Fluffy, at Myron the Fluffy. Pictures, random daily ramblings, all sorts of fun stuff there. So consider giving them a follow if you're looking for a new friend. For more information on our Patreon, it is on our contact page as well. Now, we do have some events coming up. I know that, Vero, you're going to be at FWA coming up in a few weeks, right? That's correct. So I think this next, uh, not the very next weekend, but the weekend after that will be Furry Week in Atlanta, and we will be running our open and polyamorous Furry Relationships 101 panel, which will be located in Panels Room 2, A705, from 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. on Sunday. So come check that out. They didn't give us the longest block uh, this year, but the trade-off is we're not listed as being an, an after-dark panel, 
this year. So we can actually be in the con book, <laughs> which is helpful. <laughs> that is so that definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll take that. <laughs> that is really nice. So I will just talk fast. But if you, and if you have follow up questions, they can always come find me afterwards. So that'll be good. Yeah, so if you're going to be at FWA, if you're at FWA, um, for a week in Atlanta, then definitely check it out. You know, I will not be there because unfortunately, uh, just couldn't get the time off of work, but, um, I will be at for more. Um, those events are, you know, that's kind of being finalized. So I'll let you know what's happening there just in case if work yells at me and I can't be there, I'll let you know that too. But my plan is to be at for more, uh, furthermore, which is at the end of April. So, I mean, that's going to be it for this week. You know, it's next week. We're talking about shame. Thank you again for everybody. If this is your first episode, if this is your 64th episode, thank you for listening. Thank you for all your feedback and thank you for all of your love. It is truly, you know, it is a pleasure to be able to do this. And thank you for being there and supporting us until next week. I'm Metrico. And I'm fear of the science, Kali. Be well. Thank you.